A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. But faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs of, with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Several months ago, I was with my friend, uh, Father George Gray, who many of you have met. And I was at his... Orthodox Church when I spied an icon that he had that stood out to me. And it was a woman who was very sad. She had very wise and very kind eyes, and she looked Inuit or some kind of Alaskan native, which is perhaps what caught my eye. But surrounding her face was a line of text that read, God can create great beauty from complete desolation. course asked him who she was, and I've since learned from a handful of people about this woman who's referred to as Matushka Olga. She died in the late fall of 1979. She was a priest's wife in a small village in Alaska, and she was a midwife who was familiar with the suffering that is so present in life, and also with the punctuations of joy that filter in the midst of that suffering. She assisted her husband as he traveled around to various villages. She raised quite a number of kids and worked tirelessly sewing socks and parkas and making boots and other items to help the poor villagers survive the cold winters and to keep her husband and the other clergy in vestments. Olga, by all accounts of her life, gave herself tirelessly in service to others. And it's said that at her funeral, the cold winter of Alaska suddenly broke into a spring day, allowing hundreds of people from surrounding areas to be present at her funeral who 
the day before would have been unable to make it. We're told that a flock of birds, though all the birds should have flown south for the winter already, actually followed the funeral procession from the church to the graveyard. And then the winter freeze returned almost as soon as Olga's body was deposited in the earth. Father Matthew the Poor, also known as Abba Mata, was a Coptic Christian, born and raised in Egypt. As a young man, he went to pharmacy school and eventually became quite successful, owning two of his own pharmacies and was very wealthy. But in 1948, at the age of 29, he renounced all of his wealth and entered a Coptic monastery where he lived the rest of his life as a monastic without possessions for 58 more years, having died just recently in 2006. I have a group of friends in North Portland who are part of an ecumenical community rooted in the charismatic renewal movement in the Roman Catholic Church. They have communities in various places in the U.S. and they often live together or in close proximity. They're all heavily involved in their various parishes. And in addition to the tithe that they give to their parishes, they also commit to giving an additional portion of their income to further their community's projects, mostly involving setting up low-cost private schools in underserved neighborhoods. They have one here in North Portland. I bring up these three people or groups of people for a couple of reasons. One, I want you to realize that there are saints walking around. These are not people that lived 500, 1,000 years ago. There are people now who have done audacious, radical things for the gospel of Christ. And it's also to point out that these people all share something in common. It's a common outlook that this world and the life that this world offers isn't actually life, not in the way that Jesus defines life. I think in a sense their outlook could be summed up by Abba Mata the poor's words when he says, salvation is not easy. Salvation is not easy because salvation requires a death. But I love this guy. But if we are eventually going to die, why not just do it now by our own will? Let us choose the death that leads to eternal life. This is the real victory. And he's, of course, talking about the death that comes through baptism and taking up our cross daily in following Christ. These men and women understood that Abraham is a type for us. He's, in a sense, a living metaphor of life in Christ, the life of faith. As we have seen in recent weeks, God's promises to Abraham serve to highlight that God's redemptive work in the world is his prerogative. It's based in his initiative. The covenant with Abraham reveals that God is about the business of creating life in a world that has been held captive to death. Abraham, as we're told in the epistle to the Hebrews, was a sojourner, an expatriate. But did you notice this? He was a sojourner in the land of promise. He'd effectively went on a lifelong camping trip in the very land that he had been promised by God to be given him as an inheritance. 
And as the writer makes clear, had Abraham wanted to, he could have returned home. But he doesn't. But here's the key. The reason that he doesn't return home isn't based on anything that he actually experiences in this life. He was rather looking for something, as Tolkien described it, a joy beyond the walls of the world. He's seeking something outside of his own world, his own life, his own experience. And I think this is perhaps one of the central tenets of Christianity that is in most need of attention in our day, that to be in Christ is to be an expatriate, an exile in this worldly system, not in such a way as to deny the goodness of creation or as an excuse to not serve our neighbors in love, quite the opposite, in fact. And I just want to say, we do have to be careful here. Scripture has categories that uses words like world and flesh that, if we're not attentive, can actually lead us to the Gnosticism that so pervades much of popular Western Christianity, a belief that matter and physicality are somehow inherently evil, somehow less than, or that this world is beyond saving or not worth loving. So let me just get out right at the very beginning. These are not Christian ideas about the body or about the world. To be very clear, I'm not asking you to withdraw from the world in terms of materiality, especially not as an attempt to keep ourselves pure, but I am asking you to be drawn away from the kingdom of this world, which is a kingdom of death and disaster, and to move toward the kingdom of God. The Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor, in his massive book, A Secular Age, which everyone in my line of work pretends to have read and none of us have, he tries to trace how secularism became dominant in the developed world. And whether or not you agree with all of his insights in the book that I've never read, there are a couple of things that he points out that are incredibly helpful for us to consider. He says that life in a disenchant that we live in a disenchanted age and have essentially been hemmed in by what he calls an imminent frame. These are just, this is just philosophical jargon, right? What he means by that is that all of us have grown up in a world that has explained to us in mechanistic terms. Imagine having to spend every holiday with Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's the world that we've grown up in, right? Where every, everything fun is just gonna get reduced down to, here's the pure physics of how it all works. Come on, man get a different way of talking about the world. In this view, the world is no longer seen as a liminal space, a doorway through which we can experience and learn about God and ourselves. It's instead just an evolutionary fluke that is effectively without meaning. To be in an imminent frame is to assume that what we experience now in this lifetime is all that there is it's to live without a reference point for anything outside of what is increasingly becoming scientifically observable facts. Whether or not we realize it, and the odds are stacked against us realizing it, we have all grown up surrounded by, and many of us immersed in, a Christianity that has largely been held captive by a soup of immanentized gobbledygook and what I mean by that is that post-enlightenment Christianity has been reduced to make the world a better place. 
being a Christian has been reduced to be a good person. The message of Christianity has been neutered into inspiring talks with life tips about how to have a happy marriage, how to get out of debt, how to be a good parent, all of which are good things. But they have reinforced the assumption that this life in this world is all that there is. We must recapture a keen sense of needing to be rescued from the outside. We need Christ, our high priest, to emerge from the Holy of Holies to bring about the restoration and renewal of all things. We are not going to simply make the world a better place and achieve salvation through our own efforts. So a question for you. Do we live and speak in such a way that it is clear that we are seeking a homeland? Or have we become so enmeshed in the worldly system that we are unrecognizably expatriated? We live in an age that has substituted politics for religion. Have you noticed? This is the thing that we worship. And we live in a city where violence toward our political enemies is on the increase. Does our behavior, and here we go, just so you guys know I am connected to the real world, does our behavior online and IRL in real life, for those of you not as in the know as me, does our behavior online and in real life stand in contradistinction to the dehumanization and vilification of others that is all around us? Do we behave as citizens of the kingdom of peace? Or are we agitated and anxious and angry? Here's the thing. This is not a grit your teeth and bear down hard kind of situation. You are not going to just will yourself into being and acting like a citizen of the heavenly king while using the weapons of the world which are outrage, fear, and violence. No, you become a citizen of Christ's kingdom, if I could take Father or Abba Mata's words again, by way of a death, choosing the death that leads to eternal life, which is to say, you enter Christ's kingdom through the waters of baptism, a water burial that brings you into the divine life. Your citizenship is a gift bestowed upon you, and with it, you are given new tools, no longer weapons that lead to destruction, but tools to help build, tools that go from hope to hope, from faith to faith, from love to love. But these tools of citizenship, faith, hope, and love, must be anchored in reference outside of time and space. They must be anchored in the eternal and ever-expanding kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is this very reality. If we have anchored ourselves out there in his coming kingdom, it is this very reality that will cause us to be strangers and outsiders and exiles. Because there are plenty of people in our age calling for love to prevail all over the place. 
But these calls, love wins, love is love, love trumps hate, whatever it is, they often fail precisely because they are not radical enough. They don't require a death to self. When the rabbis teach on Christ's summary of the law that we are to love God, first of all, and to love our neighbor, they're very clear that it's not that you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself, but rather you are to love your neighbor who is yourself. It's a completely different understanding of identity and existence. To fulfill the law as Christ summarizes it is to see yourself within a web of existence. You have a responsibility of love toward others and toward God. That is very different from seeing yourself as an individual who should have freedom to be and do whatever you want. And it is very different from the impulse to demonize and vilify those who agree with you. Love your neighbor who is yourself. Now we are not currently living in a place where many of us will be persecuted for our faith in Christ. And there are many of our brothers and sisters around the world who are being killed and harassed for just this. May God strengthen his persecuted church and may the blood of the martyrs bring about the flourishing of Christ's church. But I have to wonder if we have so adopted the values and outlook of our culture and been locked in this imminent frame where we are not anticipating another kingdom. That if perhaps we are not even prepared to stand as confessors of the faith should that need arise in our lifetime. I wonder, if an auditor were to inspect your life, what would they assume that you have placed your hope in? Do you spend your money like a citizen of this world or the next? Do you spend your time like a citizen of this world or of the next? Do you extend forgiveness or do you harbor bitterness? Are you generous toward people who will never be able to pay you back or are you mostly generous with yourself? Do you seek to love and understand even the most difficult people in your life or do you write them off is not worth your time and effort? Are you embarrassed by Christ's teachings? Is our hope really in another city? One that's not fixed in midair. Climate scientists say the world is probably ending. Political scientists say the world is probably ending. Social scientists say the world is probably ending, and our techno-overlords, I coined that term, techno-overlords, are banking on the singularity for eternal consciousness, or terraforming Mars as a way of achieving humanity's immortality. The nihilism, anxiety, and anger that pervade our world are understandable reactions to the seemingly insurmountable evil that faces us at every turn. I understand. I understand that to say with Matushka Olga that God can create great beauty from complete desolation would be insane. 
unless you believe with a hopeful trust that God, the creator God, can wrest his good and beautiful creation out of the grip of death and destruction, unless you believe that in the cross of Christ this work has begun and now we are called to wait with hope for its consummation in Christ's return. That's what it means to be people of faith, to be people who are citizens of another city, a heavenly city, whose architect and builder is God. We've caught our author of Hebrews here in the middle of a, of a pretty big argument. And the author's going to be moving this argument forward over the next chapter, and so I want to end with their words to help us see what he's getting at when he asks us these questions. Because he wants us to ask ourselves, are, are we like Abraham? Are we like the other patriarchs, the mothers and fathers of the church as well? Are we like Abba Mata, Matushka Olga, the people of praise? This is what the author of Hebrews says later on. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. See to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sounding of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the beggars the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you hear what he said? You have come. Already, you have already come to this new city. So, see that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. That phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us make Eucharist, 
let us give thanks, by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.